Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 248. This week, we're talking with Rohati about the need for creativity and inclusiveness. We've lost our capacity and our capability to bear witness into a culture today that we have difficulty connecting with. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for stopping by and welcome to the show. We want to see the body of Christ fully engaged in God's mission on the earth. And I do want to mention that this show is made possible in part by generous support from people like you. Visit engagingmissions.com patron to learn more about how you can be involved. Before we get to our topic today, I do want to do a couple of pieces of business. First up, I want to welcome Dalton and Nikki, who both recently liked the Engaging Missions Facebook page. Dalton and Nikki, if you're listening, it's great to connect with you there. And if you're listening and you haven't connected on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash engagingmissions so we can connect there as well. Next up, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be interviewing a guest about missions mobilization, and I would love to hear from you about this topic, especially if you have questions. I would love to consider those as part of the show. Send those to feedback at engagingmissions.com. Let me know what your question is, and also let me know if it's okay if I share your name. I would love to give credit where it's due, but I don't want to share any personal information without your permission. This week, we're going to be talking about the need for creativity and inclusiveness. And we're also going to hear what I think for many could be a prophetic message about the need for change. We're going to be talking with Rohadi, who lives in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He's an entrepreneur, a nonprofit developer, a church planter, and the author of Thrive, Ideas to Lead the Church in Post-Christendom. I think this is going to be a really valuable conversation, and I would really encourage you to take the time to listen to this and to consider what God's done in Rohati's life and how that might also apply to your life. With no further ado, we're going to be joined by Rohati. As we get started I kind of wanted to ground our conversation because we're going to talk about some stuff that's a little bit conceptual, at least at first. And I wanted to focus on the book so we could have that grounding. We'll touch a little bit more on your story as we kind of go along. But one of the things I just wanted to to talk about is we're setting the stage for this conversation. In your book, you wrote a good bit about rethinking or stepping into the mission of God, the Missio Dei. Before we start talking about what that might look like, can you help us understand, for those who might not know, what you mean when you say Missio Dei? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good foundation to begin with. Missio Dei is simply Latin for mission of God. And I believe that there is a crucial and fundamental way that we can view who God is 
And that is, God is a missionary God. God is a sending God. The triune God is one that has this identity of a unity and diversity. Mm. And the stories all the way from Genesis to Revelation include this God that's continually on this path, on this race to reach into the history of humanity over and over again, inviting us to come and reconnect into this identity of being image bearers to the Creator. And so over and over throughout, from again, Genesis to Revelation, we have this theme of this missionary God reaching in and asking us to come and participate in this unfolding kingdom hope. So that's an invitation for you and I to say yes to. And I think we find so much of our identity as believers to bear witness to, to God, to bear witness to the character of God found in, in, in the example of Jesus. So when I say, let's join that mission of God, or if I talk about mission of God, I'm really talking about who God is at a foundational level. And, and when we think about that incarnation that God is inviting us into, becoming incarnational in that sense, I'm wondering, as we look at that mission, what does that begin to look like as we live that out, as we become the hands and feet of God in wherever it is that we live? Yeah, you know, I think everyone is called unto mission in their own unique voice, and that's an individual call. It's also wrapped deeply within the context of community and church community. So what does that mm. look like? I think it looks as unique as there are people. And that's the beauty of incarnation, is that the God of the universe would care to know my name. The God of the universe interceded into the history of humanity through that incarnation, meaning God contextualized into human form. And that gives us so much space, I think, for us to contextualize incarnation in our own unique culture, in our own unique neighborhoods, cities, and beyond. As, as I think about that contextualization, one of the things that stood out to me from the book is that it seems like, as we look at the church, and I'm painting with broad strokes, I think at this point, there are definitely examples where that contextualization is more... I think, a contextualization of where we've been than the community around us. What, what, would you, what would you say to that situation? I think we're faced, and let's talk about the contemporary church, and, and let's be yeah. more specific, the contemporary evangelical church in North America. I think there is a moment where we've realized, in many respects, we're stuck. We're stuck in a space where we seem to be just talking amongst ourselves. We're being confined to stay within the safety of the four church walls. And so I think our contextualization has, has lost its efficacy in many ways. We've lost our capacity and our capability to bear witness into a culture today that we know little about, that we have difficulty connecting with. So we've often for decades, maybe centuries, lived in a cultural context where the church was at the center. It was at the center of attention. It had inherited power and privilege in the day-to-day -day life of people in America. 
And now we are coming to a place where the church doesn't have that in, inherited authority, mm. yet it's still acting in a manner where it once did. So there's a disconnect now. And what we need is a reimagined idea of both leadership and how to do church and, and this notion of contextualization in a manner that works in post-Christian America. Because culture is moving with or without the church. And it's better with a church that's not at the helm or not leading, rather co-creating alongside culture to glimpse what everyone is trying to chase. And that's, that's these longings to live out the fullness of our humanity. To, again, go back to that image-bearing quality that God calls us to, to capture. I'm interested in that comment that you just made about it being not necessarily a good thing when the church is leading, but it's better when the church is co-creating. Can you maybe build out that idea a little bit more fully so I can understand better? Sure. Well, I, I can try. Um, <laughs> That's fair. The no, yeah, the notion here, I think when we say the church, we we often refer to what the dominant church is. And in America, that dominant church has been the white Protestant church and, and probably the white evangelical Protestant church. Mm-hmm. In Canada, it's a little bit different. It would be the white Protestant and white Catholic churches have shared inherited power. So just think of it as a dinner party. And at the dinner party, there are a bunch of people around the table, but one person decides to just sit in the middle of the table, on the table, and talk down to everybody. Often this is the posture of the church and culture. Mm-hmm. And when I say that we need to leave this this inherited position at the center of culture attention, we need to go back to where we were in the early church, where we were underground. We had to be subversive to mainstream culture to live out the character of Jesus. And even today, living out the character of Jesus is subversive to many of the mainstream cultural tendencies we have. And go to a posture of, of co-creation. Mm-hmm. So rather than saying, let's just use justice as an example. Justice shows up only when the church shows up. Well, that's not true. And wouldn't it be better if justice had a church that was co-creating, that was co-leading alongside these other players seeking to make our cities and our neighborhoods better? So that's that's the idea coming into culture now, and I'll use the term again, post-Christ, post-Christian America, to have a posture as church and community to be collaborators alongside one another in our neighborhoods and cities, rather than trying to be boss all the time. Speaking as a person who was raised in church back in the 70s, the 80s, that, that time frame, and a white guy, it's first off a little bit uncomfortable to even begin to admit that there's a bit of privilege. I, I do acknowledge that, but it's it's uncomfortable to think about that and then to also think about the shifts that are coming. But you, you wrote a little bit in your book about how God brings comfort to those who are discomforted and sometimes brings discomfort to those who are comfortable. Can you share a little bit about how we might be able to change our perspective on what is happening so that we can actually be part of what God's doing going forward? Yeah, and I I don't think you're being left behind 
if you're not part of this conversation, I do believe mm. that church has an important role to rediscover itself in, in a shifting culture. America, its demographics are shifting at an incredibly fast pace. Yeah. And often when you're at the very top of, of let's, let's say the cultural pyramid, when you, you, you can't see your privilege. And if you do lose your, your position, it's like my grandma's church, right? If you lose your position where you just thought everyone would come to you on their own accord in search for the answers to life's questions, mm. it, it breeds a certain complacency in the very least. So yeah, I, I would hope that there would be a, a way for the church to recognize in their own way, in their own context, even small, small ways of hearing the stories of people who are different than them. We're coming to a, a place now where, and again, I'll use the, the terms, the, the, the white evangelical church will no longer be, and is no longer, the majority based on population in America. Mm. This is shifting quickly. Interestingly enough, as as people leave the white Protestant church, ethnic churches, ethnic evangelical churches, Latino, Black, over the same time period have held steady. Some, some have even grown. So I think there is an important exercise to do. And this is far more pronounced in America because the conversation of race and the church is, is at yeah. the forefront. Yeah. In Canada, it, it's less so. We, we kind of assume we don't have a race problem, which is in, in many respects worse. I think it's important for us to realize that one of the inhibiting factors to the church living out its mission in, in modern day America is we suffer from an, a problem of sameness. Mm. And it's a sameness on race, but it's also a sameness on demographics, sameness on who you vote for, what you believe, how much you make, sameness based on economies, right? Sameness based on what neighborhood you live in. So we don't have this unity in diversity. We have a unity in sameness. And I don't think that's very triune. So to break out of that, I think it's just a matter of finding what's comfortable for you, maybe discomfort too, but engaging in stories. So that means people and relationships that are different from your own. And so I think that's a, a critical way to move forward is, is connecting those relationships and listen to stories that aren't your own, in your own city, in your own neighborhoods. They're there and see where those take you. That's good. And it, I, I, as I've started to listen more stories, I've definitely seen how that's had a little bit of a transformation in, in my thinking. It's still hard to get out of, out of you know, 40 plus years of, of history. But I, I think it's that, that kind of thing is coming. One of the things you had touched on as you were talking was the shifting demographic. Obviously, there's a, a shifting in the U.S. as it relates to race and immigration and people mm-hmm. moving and, and all, of, all of those things that just happen over time. But there's also a shift in the U.S. and in North America at large away from people who have any recent affiliation with the church, either they might have been raised in the church and they know a little bit, but they haven't been in any way connected with any kind of church body or any group or fellowship of believers, all the way to people Mm -hmm. who aren't antagonistic or atheists, but really don't have any concept of the church. How is this an opportunity for the church to engage well? I think you use 
a great word, opportunity. So we're coming into a moment in time and it's, it's not, it's not a matter we're coming into something that's static. Mm. Culture in America is, is moving forward to a point where the vast majority of people, I can use, that's a Canadian context, the vast majority, <laughs> but in America is coming into the majority of people. When given the choice, they will check the box, no religious affiliation. And so the terms that sociologists use are the nuns and the duns. The duns are the people who grew up in church as a kid, but they left. And the nuns are those who never went, don't know the stories, don't know the language, the symbols. And it's these people who the church has long been antagonistic towards. And, and we've connected the duns and the nuns erroneously. We've made a mistake by calling them atheists. But that's not accurate at all. Hmm. The number of atheists in America stays relatively stagnant. And, and this changes as, as census data comes out. But it's a relatively small percentage, around 5 to 8%. Hmm. But the number of people who are the duns and the nuns, they're different. They may not claim religious affiliation yet. And here's the opportunity. They are those spiritual but not religious people. So it's the same longing that we all have as humans. They're looking to fill it, and they're filling it. They're finding some answers, not whole answers, but some. It's just not coming from the church. Yeah. So that's where the disconnect is. The church is incapable in many respects of connecting with a generation that doesn't look like it. And that's now quickly becoming the majority generation. I'll be the first to admit that can be a challenge for me. I hear things like, spiritual but not a churchgoer, that kind of language. And for me, it it seems like an oxymoron. It's really hard to embrace that. And I don't want to be dismissive of people. You know, I want to love people effectively, but that that for me is a roadblock. Speaking for myself, what can I do to get myself past that? Yeah, I think there's a difference between a roadblock and someone who is meandering on a road. Mm. We often try to erect too many dividing walls in the church to measure who's in and who's out. But if we change the, the, the paradigm a little bit, we can look at people and realize that everyone is on this journey. They just happen to be further or closer to where the, the church might be. And mm. I don't think the church is at the center. And I was going to say further or closer to where Jesus is, but I don't think that's accurate either. Okay. Because Jesus is right alongside everyone. There's right alongside the believer, but there's no more, no amount of praying that you can do, no amount of church going that you can do to get any more of Jesus than what you have right now. Mm. And so there's these other folks who are on this path. They're, they're searching for the same things. They, they're searching for love. They're searching to be, they're searching for beauty and to be restorers. In, in their cities, and they want to fight for what is right and what is just, and they'll find answers in, in places that don't have a church co-creating in, in the city or in the neighborhood. And what I'm saying is that if we can switch the way church looks at other people and looks at, let's just use the term, non-churchgoers, mm-hmm. we, we would realize we have far more people who are 
willing and interested to have conversations, but it just spiritual conversations about Jesus, but it doesn't fall within the familiarity of, of the core of the contemporary Christian existence in America, which tends to center around the liturgy of the Sunday service, maybe the Wednesday small group, but definitely the Sunday service. And if you're disconnected from that, then somehow your pursuit doesn't count. So I think we have a lot of work to do, not to say that Sunday service is bad, far from, absolutely mm-hmm. not, but there is a longing out there and it's quickly becoming a point. And this is where the data is taking us. Those people who check the box, no religious affiliation, within a generation, so in around 20 years, that would be half of all Americans. Mm. What is your church doing to connect with those people? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the question, right? And speaking frankly, I, I think that's something that my church, I'm not the pastor, but the church that I'm part of, is continuing to struggle with. It's the question that we're asking, and I don't know that we have any any firm answers yet either, and that's part of why I'm glad to have this conversation with you. As I think about transformation, one of the, the challenges, I think, are determining what things you need to hold on to because they're critical and what things are maybe important but can be laid aside if necessary. As you look at the the church at large, are there things that we should consider laying aside in order to be able to faithfully pursue God quickly during this critical time? I think it's not a matter of how well we can improve what we're already doing, but the answers are rooted at the very core of what the church is about. Mm. So let me unpack that. As your church searches for answers, often we tend to just try to reinvent the wheel. So we pour resources in making to make the Sunday service more contemporary. We'll switch the band. We'll do an evening service. We'll try to make the preaching more relevant. So we adjust the core element, which is that Sunday service, in search of answers. Hmm. So I don't think that that's the answer. The Sunday morning service is what it is. It's great, but it, but it's not that seeker-sensitive thing it's not the mechanism unto discipleship. But discipleship, however, I think is the mechanism to connect well in a post-Christian world. Mm. Because discipleship is really a way to live life on life with those in your community, but also those outside. Our love commandment is to love one another, to love the Lord our God, to love yourself, but to love your neighbor as well. And so I think if there are are ways for the local church to figure out how they can alter what they're doing and pour more focus, resources, and shift their paradigm around mission so that they can be better disciples and Mm. not merely watch the professional disciple makers, so the pastors do all the disciple making, but to figure out ways to unlock the potential of that priesthood, to unlock the potential of the gifts in the pews and in the congregations to go and do likewise and in your own way voice in the things that you're good at, the gifts that you have been given. Can you go and connect with even just the one in discipleship, in, in life, in relationship? That I think is going to be the critical aspect for the church, both 
to build resiliency within its walls, but also as a way to connect into the heartbeat of neighborhoods and cities. Discipleship is at its core. And we've for too long have used the Sunday service as the engine to drive the church forward and the mechanism to try to reconnect with the neighborhoods and cities and the people who are no longer attending, hmm. when in fact, what we should really be focusing on is better discipleship. That, that's something that we figured out and we practice really well in, in, in the international context, hmm. right? And it's the same thing here. And, and I suppose that's not news for anyone, but when you start to question that sacred cow of the Sunday morning service, that, that's, that's tension. That's mm-hmm. tension. But I think the best way to connect with a generation that, again, we have people who don't merely, I wouldn't say they reject the church, but they've, they've simply have never been. They're relatively neutral about it, other than all the bad stuff they might hear on TV about it or in the media. There is a generation just longing for deep connection. And I would like to see the church live out that mission, that Missio Dei, to break down dividing walls and, and just go into the places we're already connected. I mean, a lot of the times you don't have to re, reinvent the wheel and go find new places, new outreach, new event. No, just look where your congregation is already connected. Find those bright spots of people who are already doing great work in the neighborhood and, and build into them. Love the people who are literally your neighbors. It's, it, this isn't to be crass rocket science, but <laughs> but we've we've kind of created a shell, yeah. And that shell meets Sunday mornings at ten and ends at noon. You you wrote a little bit in the book about the difference between organizations that make small incremental changes over time versus a disruption. And I, I think that each probably has its place. And as I think about the kinds of things that we're talking about loving our neighbors, releasing people to walk in the gifts that they've been given, some of the things like that, it would seem like, at least on the fir- on the surface, that some of these could really be small incremental changes. Is this something that requires a new paradigm in order to, to disrupt what's currently going on? Is it something that can just be small tweaks here and there? From your perspective, what, what's required to begin walking this out? I think we already have all the tools and all the pieces. We just need to add some focus, especially to that neighborhood discipleship piece. It's my grandma's church, right? My grandma's church, they benefited from inherited privilege. So being the center of cultural attention, right? Everyone just sort of went to the three parish churches, but it was a parish church, Mm. meaning that it was localized in its neighborhood and you just knew the people who were around there. We have lost at least for the commuter church, we have lost that. I think there's a reorientation happening that's revaluing neighborhoods and proximity. But ultimately, I think the the answer is yes and no. I think the institution doesn't change with quickly and it won't be able to handle massive disruption. I think the institution only changes through small incremental changes. But everyone can't be doing small incremental changes. Mm. That's why we need to have robust church planning strategies because we need those pioneers who are out there trying and testing different things. I do believe that there are core paradigms that need to shift, particularly around mission. Mm. I think mission needs to be a 
lens through which the local church sees the world. Imagine filtering preaching or worship through a lens of mission, whereas more often than not, what we find in our communities and our churches is that mission is that thing that's sort of done out there. It's that once a month or once a week event. We might do a short-term missions or we might raise some money for the professionals who do missions, those missionaries. But it's not the, the core, it's not the lens, the foundation that we, that we filter the function of the church through. So that, that is a core shift. But from there, every church is, is connected into neighborhood, whether they realize it or not. And I believe that there are some, some easy wins that most churches can apply in their context. They may be small shifts, but they're important shifts. So reorientation around around location and neighborhood rather than commuting. That that would be a powerful one to test and, and to try. That's small as well. And that doesn't take blowing up the whole thing. You know, big institutions, they can't do change quickly. But what they can do, because often they're well-resourced, is they can release the smaller to go and try some innovative things. And we need more of that as well. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad at this point that you touched on innovation. I hadn't planned on talking about this, but as you did, it just reminded me that in order to do this kind of thing, we have to be willing to accept the probability of multiple failures. We have to be willing to try stuff out mm-hmm. and to have it have it not work. Do you, as an entrepreneur, somebody who's been through the iterative process of developing something, do you have any tips or frameworks or mindsets that would help us better understand not to celebrate failure, but how to allow for that as we continue to try to pursue with everything we have what God's doing right now? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the times our paradigms around trying new things, let's just use church planning as an example. Mm. The, the paradigm around contemporary church planning in the evangelical church has long been centered around building up the one talented leader, sending him and usually him out and building a service around that. It, that's a very costly enterprise. And it's no wonder that when, when there's huge cost involved, that expectations would be high as well. Hmm. So we, I'm not saying that we can't continue to attempt what I would call church transplanting, which is to take a hundred people and put them yeah. somewhere else. I'm not saying that that kind of, that kind of iteration or innovation is unwarranted. I'm suggesting that we need some different ways. And one of them would be, and I've seen this in, in some, some denominations or some networks, rather, rather than doing the one church plant that is, let's just use a figure of a quarter million dollars for all the different investments into people, time, right. sunk costs, etc., that you divide that into 10 and you find the person who's doing really neat neighborhood work at a smaller scale maybe a tenth of the scale, and and you bankroll them and their initiatives. And if we can attempt to do smaller yet, yet less costly initiatives, then the cost of loss is smaller as well. Hmm. So it does two things. One, it brings down the expectation of success. And we should also start with an expectation that says failure is okay. That's not often the, the, the narrative that we approach new initiatives with. We, we must approach with this notion that failure is okay. It's going to be tough, but you don't need to work yourself to death 
in an attempt to make something turn into the next megachurch. Right. And at the same time, it's also going to help us try new things and multiple new things. Because at this point, we need to try as many different things as we can to figure out what works. And this is the feedback loop. We also get information to tell us what doesn't work. Mm. So that's for the institution. You can test and find out these things work, these five worked, and then these five did not work. We have an idea of how to shape our innovation, our pioneering, our church planning, whatever it might be moving forward, because we have this data now. You can't achieve that same result if we only do planting or innovation in one way. Yeah. Thinking about your own church, Cypher Church, the the church that you're part of now, how did did you have to go through any kind of process like this for that to begin to take root? Soccer Church is totally unlike any church I've ever been in. That includes its launch. It wasn't like my first church plant, which was a, a different as well. So that's some, some context here. I came straight out of seminary, looked at plant a church, went through all the denominational church planting hoops, as do many church planters. That didn't, that didn't pan out. And so I went and planted on my own, which was not wise. Mm. And luckily connected with some other like-minded neighborhood churches and together we had some we had a critical mass and we did church together for seven years which was a success cypher church on the other hand was something that only worked because it had years of relational equity mm. prior to its launch and so this is perhaps a, a tip to aspiring church planners it's also a warning to church planners <laughs> to try to drop ship into a neighborhood cold. Of course, any missionary would know that there, there's years of contextual work, contextualizing in the neighborhood. We had that going in for years prior. Cypher Church came out of just merely a prayer group of asking the question, praying about the question of how can we connect with these people who would never, ever step foot in a contemporary church. Mm. They're just so disconnected from the language we use, yet they need Jesus all the same. And that, that prayer evening, those questions, those dreams that we had switched into the possibility of a church plant in late 2016. We put together the plan and we launched the church plant in two months. Hmm. Now, we also had an expectation that that thing was going to probably not last. We also had very low cost involved. Both of us, there's two of us, and we split a half-time position when there's money. Uh, and early on, there wasn't. But we had this, this expression of church that some might have called merely a, an outreach. It wasn't that. Some would have called merely an event. It wasn't that either. It, it was a church, and God blessed us with incredible transformations every single time this church met for service and the relationships that are emerging from this are incredible. People are being baptized, people are being healed, people all because we were able to say yes and act faithfully to a call. Does it look like a weekly service on a Sunday morning? No, no. Does it offer us security as leaders? No, it's totally different. Yet, at the same time, it's 
absolutely the same as any church. We struggle with the same things. How do we build good replicating discipleship? That's what we're chasing. And in fact, we have closed or we've pulled back from a very successful service. We said, we have limited resources and energy. We can continue with this service. It will call more of our energy. We'll have mm-hmm. to double down to make it work even better. Or are we going to take those limited resources and put them into developing good relationships and discipleship? Mm-hmm. And so we're attempting the latter, and we'll see where it goes in another year. I, I really appreciate your perspective as you're sharing this, that it's... I don't want to say an experiment in the sense that it's just kind of a try and see, but it it sounds to me like you're very effectively following God and going, well, this is what it seems like he's asking us to do. So we're going to do that faithfully and see where God takes us because sometimes he doesn't give us the end from the beginning. I, I really appreciate that. There's there's so much more that I'd like to ask you, but we're we're starting to run out of time. As we bring this to a close, I'm wondering... If people are listening to this and they're thinking, you know what, I appreciate what Rohati's doing. I'd like to support him in prayer. What would you suggest that they pray for or pray about? For writing, it's always tough to be kind of on the edge and, and compelling, comfortable church into into a place that's uncomfortable. And so that can be tiring. Mm. For for ministry, I, I think it's, it's or for, for Cypher Church, I think it's always just an ongoing prayer that we would continually be faithful to respond to the relationships that are placed in front of us. Mm. That's my, my, <laughs> of the five gifts, shepherding is, is, is at the bottom for me. Mm. So uh, I always have to be mindful of, of reinvesting and focusing in on re- good relationships and, and discipleship, which, which is, yeah, I can do. Anybody can, can do, but there, there is a depth and uh, and a giving of yourself when it comes to working for relationships that you hope create lasting memories and span. You know, a vision for church plants now is not into one, two, three years, but into generations. Yeah. So prayers for generations. Yeah, that's good. For those that are listening, I would encourage you to take a minute and pray because your prayers make a difference. Go ahead and pause the recording and pray for Rohadi and for the church that God would do exactly what he's asked. In the show notes, we're going to have a link for the book so that you can go check that out. I do recommend that you pick up his book. It's a good read and it it will make you think and it will give you some ideas for what God might be doing. This might be a catalyst for you if you're asking God for answers right now. So I do encourage you to do that. That'll be linked up for you in the show notes. Rohati, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, thanks, Brian. You opened up the door here and you're asking important questions for the church. And so your listeners are really lucky to be on for the journey. I appreciate that. I'd like to say one more huge thank you to Rohati for joining us and also to you for taking your time to listen to this conversation. And in particular, I would love to hear from you. If you took something away from this conversation, whether it's about the mission of God or something about thinking differently about ministry, I would love to hear from you about what that was. You can do that by leaving a comment on the show notes page, which is at engagingmissions.com slash Rohati. That's engagingmissions.com slash R-O-H-A-T-I. 
R-O-H-A-D-I, engagingmissions.com slash Rohadi. Leave your comment there about what you took away from this conversation. I'd love to hear from you about that. As a reminder, I am looking for those questions about missions mobilization. And to be quite honest, I'm going to need those pretty quickly in order to allow our guests the time to prepare. So if you could get those to me by the next week or so, I'd really appreciate that. Make sure that you come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to be hearing from Chris and Joy Copeland about some of the ways that God has provided for them in the past and how they walk out the practice of creating Ebenezer's, those stones of remembrance, so that they can remember what God's done in their lives. This was a really wonderful conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss that is to subscribe to the show by visiting engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's where you'll find ways to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. Or if you don't have a favorite, you can choose one right there. That way it can be delivered automatically to your mobile phone or your tablet, however it is that you listen to the show. Also, if you have a story about how you have been inspired or equipped or challenged through the Engaging Missions show, I would love to hear from you. Send that to feedback at engagingmissions.com. I'd love to know how the show is impacting your life and get that feedback from you. So feedback at engagingmissions.com. One more time, look forward to connecting with you in a couple weeks. I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation with Chris and Joy Copeland.